Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. From the 1st District of Rhode Island, Congressman David Cicilline, next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Cup. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Friday edition of Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonnese alongside my friend Jason Nichols. This is, of course, a Daily Caller production. And Jason Nichols, what do we have today? Today we have Congressman David Cicilline uh, from Rhode Island, a state that I have much, much love and adoration for. He's here with us. Congressman, how are you today? Great. Great to be with you. Uh, that's it's uh, it's great to see you. And of course, uh, we have a connection, uh, you know, and I have to give a shout out to my grandmother. I'll see you in a couple hours. And uh, thank you for everything and, and getting us in contact with the congressman. Now, congressman, and also, there's... you know, just to make a point that your grandfather was one of the most beloved and one of my most beloved professors at Brown, um, just incredibly wonderful teacher and mentor to so many students. So uh your grandmother and grandfather have a special place in my heart. Oh, thank you. Thank That's you awesome. so kindly. Yes, uh, and our, my family definitely uh, feels that way about you as well. She is a very big fan of yours, uh, even back from, to your days, not only as a student at Brown, but also as mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. So I have, uh, we have so much to talk about today. Uh, of course, on the international front, you actually visited Kiev recently. And uh, I just kind of wanted to get a sense of what you think is going on. Uh, is our intelligence correct that uh, a Russian invasion is likely uh, to into uh, Ukraine? Look, I think, you know, we have the greatest intelligence agency in the world and we're collaborating very closely with our European allies and with Ukrainians to be sure that we have the best information. But I think what is, you know, publicly been reported, which is the only thing I can really disclose is that they're in, Excess, in excess of 100,000 troops surrounding Ukraine, uh, Russian troops. Um, and, you know, Vladimir Putin has done nothing really to de-escalate this aggression. Uh, and, you know, I think no one knows for sure what his next move will be. What I think has been very important and one of the reasons we traveled to Kyiv as the Foreign Affairs Committee was to make it clear that we stand with the Ukrainian people that no country has a right to change the borders of another country by force, uh, that Ukraine is a democracy, and uh, though not a member of NATO, uh, strongly supported by the United States and allies and the European Union and NATO countries, uh, because we recognize the sovereignty and security of Ukraine reflects on the sovereignty and security of Europe and ultimately the United States. So, you know, we fought two world wars to bring peace and stability to the continent of Europe, and uh, we're not going to allow and we cannot allow another country to by force take parts of another country. And so we've made it very clear to Vladimir Putin that if he does, in fact, further uh, intrude into Ukraine, there will be crushing, crippling sanctions that will devastate his economy, that will impact the oligarchs that surround him and hopefully him as well. And so far, at least, it has deterred him from taking this military action, although, you know, he has the capability based on where his troops are and the number to do it at any moment. 
Congressman, I was going to ask you, and I think you answered in part uh, the, the question that I wanted to lay out, which is what is the rationale for American interests in Ukraine? Because uh, I, quite honestly, I feel like that that case has not been made very strongly to the American public. We've heard a lot of noise about Russia being imminently about to invade Ukraine, but not a lot of uh, seeking the consent of the government here in the United States for um, you know pretty dramatic engagement. Obviously, we're sending a whole bunch of uh, weapons to Ukraine. We've got uh, somewhere in the vicinity of, you can correct me if I'm wrong, over 300 military advisors who are in the country. Those are actual American troops who are advising the military in Ukraine. Uh, and then you mentioned that you know it's, it's an American interest to protect the sovereignty of that country. But I guess that really depends on what are Putin's ambitions beyond a Ukraine ambition? I mean, I think the claim, right, is that Russia believes that they have a territorial claim over Ukraine. If they were to seize that territory, what would that mean for the rest of Europe? Do we really believe that Russia is like is is looking for a staging ground to invade Europe itself, the rest of it? Well, there, there's no question. I mean, the, the Vladimir Putin has done that in places all over the continent, most recently in Georgia. So this is not the, an isolated instance of so uh, of Russian aggression. And the reality is the decision about whether or not they're going to be a democracy and look to the West or uh, somehow form an alliance with Vladimir Putin is a decision of the Ukrainian people. They've decided to be, be a democracy. They've decided to turn to the West. They want to be in NATO. That is, that is their right. It's, Vladimir Putin has no right to overrule the, the sovereign will of the Ukrainian people. And it matters to the United States if we allow, you know, we have to stand for something. We stand for democracy, self-government, the ability of people to make their own decisions about the kind of government they want and the kind of alliances they want to make. That's a central part of international law. If we just sit by and think, okay, Vladimir Putin can take whatever he wants, you're creating danger to the security of Europe and certainly ultimately to the security of the United States. The NATO alliance was a defensive alliance that was built to respond to Russian aggression. It's not an offensive alliance. It's to defend against Russian aggression, which is exactly what we have here. Russia is the aggressor. This claim that there are people in the West that want to be part of Russia is a Russian propaganda. People in the West want, are Ukrainian. They identify as Ukrainian. They want nothing to do with Russia. And I'll tell you the one thing that was very clear to me from my, both my trips to Ukraine, and particularly the one I've just returned from, is Ukrainian people are going to fight for their country. They are not going to surrender uh, to you know the, the dictatorial thug of, of Vladimir Putin. And look, they're going to be outgunned and outarmed, but they, they have tasted freedom and they're going to fight hard. And I think it's important for all the democracies and freedom-loving people of the world to stand with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people and to do all that we can. We're obviously not going to send troops. They're not a NATO country. We don't have a treaty obligation. But we definitely have an interest in repelling Russian aggression that is starting in Ukraine and that can move into and has, in fact, presented itself in other parts of Europe. And I dare say, has presented itself in meddling in the American presidential election. So we have a strong interest in repelling this kind of aggression. So what do you say to uh, Americans who may be concerned that this may be an, another Libya situation or, you know, where Americans have gotten involved in, in a conflict and it actually devolves into something that could potentially be worse. Uh, and also, my other question is about China. And that is, many people are saying that the winner of any kind of, uh, you know, Cold War, per, so to speak, between the United States and Russia or NATO and Russia and, and the EU and Russia, uh, the winner is China. Um, so I, I just, I guess I wanted to see what your response to, to those, those. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, 
No, I think it's a it's an important question. I think you know one of the most disturbing developments has been the you know kind of developing rapprochement between China and Russia, have, who have historically not been uh, allies or partners. Uh, they have some interests that are aligned. You know, Russia needs and uh, China needs energy. Russia has it. So now their their ideologies are so different that it's hard to imagine they're going to have a deep and abiding, uh, you know, authentic relationship. But you don't have to in geopolitical terms. They can you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things we have to be very concerned about and, and watch very carefully. Um, but, you know, I think with respect to the Libya comparison, look, this is a, this is a democracy that has made enormous progress in electoral reform, in, in battling corruption, and, you know, obviously much more work to do, but, but it's a country that is working hard to strengthen its democratic institutions. And, you know, ultimately the decision is the Ukrainian people. It's not up to the United States. It's not up to the European allies. They've decided they want to be a democracy. They've decided they want to join NATO. They've decided they want to be aligned with the West. That's the, you know, that's a central tenet of international law and of you know, basic self-determination is you get to decide as your own country and your own people. And that's what's at stake here. And I think uh, we have to be prepared to support them in every way that we can. We're obviously not going to send American troops. And interestingly, you know, the Ukrainian people are very proud. They never once in our visit asked for troops. They, they're prepared to fight and die for their own country. They prefer to have some support in terms of ammunition and weapons and to be able to have a fair fight, but no one's asking to fight on their behalf. They're willing to defend their own country, but they need the support of their allies. And I think it makes sense for us to provide it. Can, can I ask you to, on this issue, what is the, like the composition within Congress on this? Because it seems like the, the, the your opinion, the one that you're advancing, is basically the unanimous mainstream opinion between both Republicans and Democrats. Um, you know, I, I think that obviously we live in a country now where I think our leaders have kind of earned cynicism, right? Over like we're, we're, we're more skeptical now, and I think that's been well earned, especially of things like the intelligence community after the failures in Iraq and uh, and and on and on. And 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 you know what one of the things that we hear is this people like look at like okay look all these ukrainian arms american arms going into ukraine javelin missiles that's enriching lockheed martin there's all these defense contractors that are making tons of money and people become suspicious what what is the breakdown is there an actual are there people even within the congress who are kind of opposed to this who have any sway whatsoever or is it kind of all of one mind yeah i mean i would say that there's a there's three groups of kind of people, there are three groups that are just in general terms, I think the vast majority, both Republicans and Democrats, I think are the view that I just stated that this, right. look, this is not something we want. This is not something we have lots of other things to, we should be worried about, but this yeah. is a crisis that's been brought to us by Russian aggression. I think that's by and large, the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats, our trip is bipartisan. I think there are some people who are more aggressive uh, in the Senate who think we should impose sanctions now, like before a further Russian invasion. I think that's a very small group. And then I think there are some uh, progressives who are, I think, properly nervous about, you know, what confidence do we have that these weapons don't get into the wrong hands and right. and, and create more problems. And I, I think those are fair questions, but I think in, on balance, most people are of the view, look, this is Russian aggression with tremendous consequences for the security of the United States. And we have a vested interest in making sure Ukraine has its ability to defend itself. So in most negotiations, you see that it's, you know, it's carrots and sticks. Uh, if the United States is not willing to hear Vladimir Putin and his um, demands that Ukraine not be able to join NATO ever, 
what actually are what actually is on the table? What actually can the United States negotiate? We keep hearing about that, you know, we're trying to find a diplomatic solution, but it seems like everything that we're hearing in the public is that, you know, Vladimir Putin's issue is NATO and the United States and the EU say that that's non-negotiable. So yeah. what actually can we do to avoid, uh, well, you know, a conflict? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reality is Vladimir Putin put forth a demand that he knew could never be met. I mean, NATO, by its own articles of incorporation, um, leave it up to member countries to join. And then there's a very specific process as to whether or not you can become a member of NATO. And so it, it, it's impossible to guarantee a country will never be allowed to be in NATO. Like it's just inconsistent with the whole principle of NATO. And he knows that. And so he put that forward knowing that no one's going to agree to that. On the other hand, when he raised questions about his security, I think the, the Biden administration has made it very clear and there have been an exchange of, nego you know, of proposals and obviously lots of uh, diplomatic meetings that there are ways to reassure uh, Russian sovereignty, which is sort of a joke because NATO is not an aggressive alliance. I mean, joining NATO doesn't enable Ukraine to aggressively invade Russia. It's an absurdity, which is why the intelligence that was released by the Biden administration that that you, that Russia was actually developing a propaganda film with you know actors and fake dead bodies to claim that Ukraine invaded Russia and that they were retaliating by I mean it's preposterous because no one believes that Ukraine has the capacity to do that and being a member of NATO would not enhance that because it's a defensive uh, posture. But having said that, there are ways to provide some security, you know, arms uh, treaties. Uh, other things. The reality is, I think the biggest challenge for Vladimir Putin, which is the hardest one, is the real threat to Russia and the security of this tyrant, you know, uh, despot, is a functioning, vibrant democracy on his border. The Russian people look at Ukraine and they think, there's a country with freedoms and democracy. Like, why can't that be us? That's the single greatest threat to Vladimir Putin. And so he doesn't want Ukraine on his border because it will provide tremendous unrest in his own country, which is already has a crating, cratering economy, big challenges. And so like he can't move Ukraine, it's on his border. So I, you know, I think there are ways to try to create some security assurances, but the real insecurity to Vladimir Putin is not a Ukraine part of NATO, it's Ukraine continuing as a functioning and prosperous and stable democracy, which is why my prediction is he's gonna to try to do something which he's already doing through cyber warfare just to destabilize Ukraine, that he doesn't actually want to take it over. He doesn't want the responsibility that comes with that, and that will be a long, drawn-out, ugly street fight. But he just wants to poke enough at it to create instability so he can try to put his own person in power rather than the democratically elected president so he can show his people, that's not so great. You know, democracy in Ukraine is not so great to try to, you know, prevent sort of uprising in, in Russia. So I think that's the biggest threat is Ukraine as a functioning democracy. That's a hard thing to alleviate because that's obviously what we want. Jason, any anything you want to get finished on this topic? Because I want to move to another one, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, absolutely. Just real, real quick. Uh, you, uh, you keep bringing up the fact that Ukraine uh, needs to get to be a get to the point where it's a functioning democracy. But it seems like it's a long way away from that. Do you agree with the president when he said that Ukraine is possibly decades away from joining NATO? Yeah, I didn't say uh, Ukraine's a long way from being a functioning democracy. It's a democracy right now. It's gone 
great work in terms of electoral reforms, making real progress on corruption, um, rule of law. But look, there's a long way to go to become a member of NATO. There's a certain benchmarks you have to meet. So I think the president is absolutely right as a practical matter. It is unlikely Ukraine is going to meet all those benchmarks for, for uh, you know, not for a very long time. That's quite different than saying, OK, Russia, we will agree to your demand that they not ever be a part of it. Like that's not for anyone else to decide but NATO and, and Ukraine. But yes, it is not something that's going to happen tomorrow because they just haven't met those benchmarks. Uh, Congressman, you mentioned earlier that there are a lot of other issues that that are obviously deserving of focus in the United States. And so I want to connect this to your thoughts on what you expect out of the midterms this year. I mean, obviously, every election really is and it should be a report card on whether or not uh, lawmakers are fulfilling their obligations to the electorate. Um, I, we see some numbers this week out of the uh, DCCC, some internal polling that reveals that Democrats in particular um, are in, in some ways very disconnected with many swing districts in the country. Polling finding that 57% of voters in competitive congressional districts agree with this statement, quote, Democrats in Congress have taken things too far in their pandemic response. Um, things like uh, Democrats in Congress support defunding the police and taking more cops off the street. That's That sentiment was found among 64% of midterm voters. And additionally, <laughs> on the border crisis, uh, 62% of voters in contested districts agree with the following statement. Democrats in Congress have created a border crisis that allows illegal immigrants to enter the country without repercussions and grants them taxpayer-funded benefits once here. Um, what can Democrats do and what should be Democrats be doing in order to focus on not losing the House and responding to the needs of voters? So uh, with all due respect, every claim that you just made is uh, demonstrably false. First of all, Democrats do not favor defunding the police. Uh, despite the fact that Republicans continue to repeat that that phrase, it is not the policy of the Democratic caucus. It's not the policy of the Democrats in the House. And in fact, uh, maybe the most powerful indicator of that is that uh, when we passed the American Rescue Plan, which included you know $480 billion, uh, which was eligible for law enforcement and local police departments, which were really in need of these resources because of the pandemic and rising crime as a result, Every single Democrat voted for that funding for the police and every single Republican voted against funding for the police. So if we have any, any example of defunding or not funding the police or refusing to fund the police, it's sadly the Republicans in the House. So that's number one. Number two, the American Rescue Plan was designed to crush the virus by providing tremendous resources to, for vaccines and, and uh, testing and all the things that are necessary that built on what was done in the CARES Act but it was also intended to respond to the economic crisis that followed. It provided for state and local funding, emergency rental assistance, um, uh, assistance to schools so they could reopen safely, um, child tax credits, I mean, all kinds of things to help working families get back into the workforce after this devastating pandemic. And so we have a lot to run on, a lot to be proud of, and the difference that we've made on this pandemic and rebuilding the economy so that it works for everyone. At the same time, we recognize that where you have headwinds, you know, where it's the midterms, the party in power traditionally loses seats. I think the difference, the reason we're going to buck history and we're going to win the midterms and, you know, enlarge our majority in the House and win and hold on to the Senate is because we have delivered on the things that matter in people's lives. And we have a Republican Party, which is not the Republican Party of my grandparents. You know, this is a party of chaos and corruption and the big lie. These are people who vo voted against certifying the election results, despite the fact that Trump's election official said it was the fairest and free election of our lifetime. These are people who voted against 
relief to small businesses, to child working families, universal pre-K, all the things that matter in people's lives. And they're a party that's promoting the, you know, that the insurrection was really a legitimate political discourse. This was an attack on our democracy that resulted in the death of five people, dozens of police officers seriously injured, beaten. And we have a former president who's saying they should be pardoned. And we have the Republican National Committee saying this is legitimate political discourse. This is lunacy. And they, you know, the, the American people have a choice between Democrats who have delivered and who are supporting and fighting to preserve our democracy and a party that is a party of chaos, corruption, insurrection, and standing against helping the American people. So I think in the end, you know, you have to run on something. And, you know, the Republicans are benefiting and sort of cheering on inflation. Look, inflation's a real problem. And we have to understand that people are struggling with the impacts of price of food and gas. The president's worked intensely on supply chain issues. I think the Fed has a responsibility to deal with inflation. I think you're going to see that. We're starting to see some evidence that's going to taper off, but that's real and we've got to address it. And so I think if you're struggling to put groceries in your grocery cart and put gas in your car, the idea of talking about Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure bill seems very detached. And I absolutely think that's right. Um, but we have to do both things. We've got to uh, you know, do everything we can to address the inflation issue, make sure we're characterizing Republicans accurately, and then reminding people what we've gotten done. I think that's the recipe for success in the midterms. Yeah. Right. It, it, you got something, yeah, well, I do, but I know, I know, just because of the length of time we have, um, that you want to jump in. I, I, I just let me. I guess just if I could pick a discrete point, then because there's obviously there's a million things you and I could talk about, but let's pick inflation. And uh, and you mentioned uh, the March 2021 <laughs> um, uh, American Rescue Plan, right? That was that was the name of that plan. Um, so that that comes out, and that's you know trillions of dollars injected into the economy, and you've got. Uh, the White House has admitted that that had in tremendous inflationary pressure. That that was that that created a dramatic inflation. That's the White House's admission. No, in I fact, don't think the White House has said that. I, no, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not confident. That. I'm confident of that. I don't I, think. I think there, that there has been certainly economists and maybe White House officials have acknowledged that obviously the rescue package, when you pump that much money into the economy to save small businesses, yeah. to help working families get through it, you can have some inflationary pressure. That's fair. Well, what people me, have also. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'll just point to no, them. I'll point to the big New York Times op-ed then from yesterday from Steve Ratner, who said the same thing that this was. Yeah, that's not did, the White House. Steve Ratner's not the White House. Correct. You're right about that. He's the former White House uh, under Barack right. Obama. So uh, there are certainly economists who have made that argument, but I, but I think what has been very clear is, and I had a hearing about this before my antitrust subcommittee. There's no question that there are some inflationary pressures as a result of the aid package. Those were, were absolutely essential and necessary to do, and it was required to make sure we defeated the pandemic and helped working families navigate and survive it. So I think that's clear. I think the real driver of inflation is corporate greed. And the Fed chairman, Jay Powell said this the other day, these corporations are raising prices because they can, because so many of them are these gigantic dominant firms who are taking advantage of a pandemic to drive up prices. Corporate profits are through the roof mm -hmm. and consumers are paying the price. So some of this is gouging. We've introduced legislation to give the FTC more uh, power to, to attack people who are gouging during a public health crisis. Some of this is because of the monopoly power of these large firms. I'm doing a lot of work to try to bring more competition into these uh, very consolidated markets. But, you know, we see this all the time. You know, this, they, you know, they see an opportunity. They have earnings calls where they brag about, we can basically raise prices as much as we want because of demand. 
And that's, that ought not be allowed. So we've got to figure out how to tamp that down. That's a real issue. Uh, and you know, particularly with oil and gas companies, same issue. Um, and I think you're, you're seeing the president release the, the largest release from the petroleum reserves to help bring down gas prices. So he's doing that. The Fed has to do it. This is all hands on deck. It's a real issue, no question about it. Yeah, well, I'll just add really quickly that I, I think one of the issues here is messaging. Uh, so that kind of connects uh, the earlier question that Vince asked and this issue of inflation. Number one, inflation is, is global. Uh, if you look at Germany is experiencing its highest inflation since, since reunification. Uh, if you look at the EU, highest inflation on record. So this is a global issue. A lot of it has to do with supply chain uh, bottlenecks and the fact that uh, people paid more for goods than services, you know, which which drove demand up. And, you know, we know how that how that translates to inflation. So, I mean, there there are a confluence of issues when it comes to inflation. And Vince is correct that some of the aid which was necessary that came under the Trump administration and the Biden administration actually led to, to more inflation. But I think it's important to remember the importance of the American Rescue Plan, which kept 4 million children out of poverty. You know, uh, I think we, we need to understand all of that also. And I know no one likes to talk about this, but wages have risen uh, the highest they, they've been uh, the highest they have been, or it's been the highest rate of, of uh, increasing since 1983. Um, so we do need to kind of tamp down inflation and try to keep wages high. And so my, I guess my question, uh, I have so many questions and I know we have a limited amount of time, but um, my question is, do you think that the Fed should raise <laughs> interest rates? People are saying that they may raise interest rates seven times this year. And there are many people, including me, who are concerned that if you keep raising interest rates, uh, that it's going to slow the economy. And we're going to be in, you know, in a situation where it's going to slow wage growth. It's going to slow all of, you know, all the elements of our economy when some elements of our economy are really strong. Unemployment is low. Uh, wage wages are, are getting higher. Um, so do you trust the Fed to, to balance that uh, moving forward? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's no question that the Fed has indicated its intention to raise interest rates as a way to uh, restrain the growth of inflation. I think the trick is they have to do it again, in the least amount necessary to tamp down inflation and their expertise will help guide that process. But I think we have to watch it really carefully. But you reminded me that, you know, the Democrats have a plan additionally to drive down costs for folks to deal with the issue of inflation. And Republicans have stood in the way of that plan. So the Fed is one part of it. The Petroleum Reserve release is one part of it. The supply chain is one part of it. But in Build Back Better, it specifically provides provisions which will lower the cost of healthcare, provide universal pre-K, which is lowering the cost for three and four year free pre-K. It has increases in the earned income tax credit. It reduces the cost of prescription drugs, health insurance premiums. I mean, the list goes on and on. So we have a set of proposals in Build Back Better that we've passed out of the House that will lower costs for Americans, working families. And our Republican colleagues are standing in the way of that. So it's like you can't squawk about inflation and sort of invoke the power of that as a political tool and then stand in the way of doing anything about it and call yourself responsible. So look, we have a problem. The president's doing everything in his power. You know, the Fed has responsibility. We have 
a plan to help respond to that. And we need our Republican colleagues who talk about it and use its political value so much to join with us in actually doing something about it. But, but Build Back Better in particular, you know, the criticism that, that the people who ultimately blocked it, Joe Manchin included, is that it is a massive spending package that would only accelerate the inflation crisis. So what is he getting wrong? No, he's, he's absolutely wrong. Look, the reality is all of those investments that are in Build Back Better are paid for. Unlike the one, you know, it's just ironic. It's almost the exact amount. The Republican Trump tax cut, which was $1.7 trillion, which was like juiced the economy and, and had no long-term positive impact other than making people at the very top richer than they were, that was unpaid for. That added to the national debt. And my Republican colleagues were, couldn't run to the voting machine fast enough to give their you know, donors a big tax cut. When it comes to making the same investment to rebuild the economy after a pandemic, and, and make sure that economy works for everyone, suddenly it's too much money. Look, we've got to rebuild the economy. It's fully paid for. It's over a 10-year period. It makes the, you know, we've got to invest in the American people, which is what Build Back Better does. And while you mentioned Joe Manchin, it didn't earn the support of a single Republican in the Senate and a, or a single Republican in the House. If you want to see the difference between the two political parties, look at what's in Build Back Better and ask yourself, why are these things that one party supports that benefit working people and that we can't get a single Republican to care as much about these proposals as they did about a big gigantic tax cut for the richest people in this country. More with Congressman David Cicilline in just a moment. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Okay, so I, I have, I know we're, we're running out of time, but I do want to ask uh, one question uh, about, uh, you know, messaging and, and midterms. Uh, one of the things that I was reading recently is that the Democratic Party is losing ground with Latino voters. And you were mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. It's about 38, 39% Latino, uh, huge Dominican population, huge Puerto Rican population. Why is it do you think that you're losing ground with, with Latino voters and other voters of color, especially at a time when you mentioned the insurrection, you mentioned people walking around, you didn't mention this, but I'll mention it, walking around with Confederate flags and, and all of the things that we've been seeing, but you're still losing ground. Uh, what do you think is wrong with democratic messaging? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a challenge that we have had you know, for, for a very long time. And you know, for really two reasons. One, if you ask a Republican why they are for or something, against something, you will get almost the same answer um, almost the same language. Part of that is a result of good discipline. Part of that is a result is you have a Republican Party, at least the Congressional Republican Party, that is mostly older white men that come from a common set of experiences and they use common language. And so it's very easy for them to simplify and amplify and repeat. And that's critical to communication. You look at the Democratic Caucus, which I'm proud to be a part of, it's the most diverse caucus in the history of the Congress of people of color, LGBTQ people and, and women. So it's a very diverse caucus that reflects the brilliant diversity of our wonderful country. And you ask 100 Democrats why they're for or against something, they'll give you 100 different explanations. And so it's just partly who we are as a party. Now that's not an excuse. We've got to you know, hone in on with the assistance of the president and be very clear and a very simple message that we're delivering. We're fighting for, for working people in this country and delivering for them. And Republicans are the party of chaos and corruption and confusion. We have to just keep repeating that. And the truth is we spent the last year, as we always do as Democrats, getting the work done. You know, we did the CARES uh, uh, Act, then we did the American Rescue Plan, then we did the bipartisan infrastructure bill, now we're doing, we didn't bother to spend five minutes telling the American people 
what those things mean in their lives because you know we just want to get the work done because there was a crisis. I think you'll see for the next year, now that that work is done, once we get Build Back Better done, we'll have the next nine months to actually remind the American people what we stood for, what we fought for, what we delivered, and who voted against it. And so they, we have Republicans now that are coming to our press conferences who voted against the infrastructure bill and are there you know, with the shovel in their hands saying, isn't this great? It's like, we need to call out that hypocrisy. Only 12 of them voted for it. And we're gonna have a great opportunity to tell that story. But it's partly, I think, kind of who we are as Democrats. We need to be more disciplined on it. But it's also because we've been doing the work. And now uh, we'll have the next year during the, the year of the election to really remind people what we got now, we've done over a thousand events as a caucus on the infrastructure bill, um, which is creating millions of jobs, rebuilding our roads, our bridges, our ports, our transit. That's just the beginning of what you're going to see from Democrats. Uh, final, my final thought, just reacting to that point, which is, is uh, you know, I, you, you say it's a, it seems to be a messaging problem. You're getting the work done, just not getting the message out. But there are examples where it seems to be there's, there are governance problems. Now, this is not at the, the congressional level. In San Francisco, we just saw a really interesting election this week. Is Three school board members were thrown out primarily by Democrat voters in California and in, in San Francisco, about 79% in one case uh, of one of the school board members, just because the schools were closed principally and because those school board officials were, le were leading sort of like renaming commissions against Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, school, uh, namesake school in that area. Uh, when the parents are basically saying, look, look, we might even support you on renaming stuff, but it's not that, it's get the schools open. We need our kids in school. You know, at the national level, the CDC took advice uh, kind of behind the scenes, and then it became public in May of last year from the um, the biggest teachers unions on how to write the school reopening guidance. And that, of course, was restrictive. It kind of kept the schools closed. So on, on that front, uh, Congressman, I would say that you, you maybe maybe there is a messaging issue, but I do think that there's a governance issue <laughs> that voters are scoring Democrats on that needs to be um, corrected. Well, I mean, 99% of schools in this country are open and they're open because we provided resources for them to do that safely. Democrats are the ones that allowed schools to open and that gave them the resources to do it. So you can find one you know, incident of, you know, in one city or town where things went awry, but we're responsible for the safe opening of schools. We're the responsible for the safe opening of small businesses. We're responsible for defeating the pandemic. So this idea of like, you know, you're right, we have to communicate it. But it, it, and are there examples of people who did things that some Democrats might disagree with? Of course. But I think when you look at, in a holistic way, what President Biden and Democrats have delivered in response to this deadly pandemic and how we helped working families get through it and, and, and have some economic security, and then how we help the economy uh, be in a position to rebuild and have, you know, you know the president in the first year created 6.4 million jobs the largest job growth on record. Um, vaccines, you know, were, were, there were 1% of the American population that was vaccinated when Joe Biden took office. Now 200 million Americans are fully vaccinated. I mean, the list goes on and on. So we have a strong record of having get it done. You know, we can always count on the Republicans to find some either untrue thing like defund the police or socialism or some other crazy story about one city or town and characterize the entire Democratic Party as that's our main effort. But it's just people's, voters are smarter than that. They don't, they're not going to fall for that baloney. And I think so long as we continue to deliver and get things done for the American people and continue to make the kind of progress we've made on defeating this pandemic and rebuilding the economy in a way that works for everyone in this country, we're going to win majorities for the House, the Senate, and reelect the president in two years. Well, uh, Congressman, I'll just say, um, well, I have one final question, and, but I will make a comment here. 
is that, yes, I agree that voters are smart, uh, but you have to tell them what they're doing. And I think that uh, the Democratic Party has absolutely failed in when it comes to messaging to people, letting them know their accomplishments. Donald Trump, if you want to take uh, an example, Donald Trump was very good at taking credit for things, even if he had nothing to do with it. Uh, but the Democratic Party, you know, they want to tell you two weeks before the election, hey, look at what all we did. Uh, instead of touting those accomplishments yeah. the entire time. Yeah, and that I mean, will be to their detriment. No come, question about uh, it. November. Can I just say one thing, Joe, Jason? I mean, you're absolutely right. The reality is though, you can't underestimate the difference in the ability to amplify the, the, the work of the two parties. The Republican Party has a ecosystem, a media ecosystem, which has really been unseen. I mean, you're seeing evidence of it now where people on Fox News are texting the president's chief of staff during the attempt attempted coup on our government. But there's a whole ecosystem of Fox News, of Breitbart, of talk radio, of blogs. They coordinate and communicate and amplify. Like they have morning calls where they share out, this is what's gonna be, we're gonna talk about inflation today, or we're gonna talk about Hillary Clinton, whatever. We don't have a, an equivalent on the on the, the Democratic side. We Why have not? media outlets that, <laughs> right. Well, we have Why media not? outlets that are more favorable to us, but we don't have that sort of coordinated ego. It just doesn't exist because it's a private, it's a money-making enterprise. We don't have the ability to generate that as the government. That happens in the marketplace. So, you know, that's a reality. We need to figure out how to deal with it. You add to that the ability to spread misinformation and propaganda on social media platforms completely unchecked. And you have just a deadly combination. You end up with January 6th. So this is a real problem. But, you know, in the end, it's the situation in which we currently live. We've got to live with, you know, figure it out. So I'm doing my work on the monopolies of the big tech companies. But you know, we have to just constantly be talking to voters about the work we're doing, what we're getting done, what difference it's making. But we don't have this like state television that is amplifying these lies. So you now get the entire Republican party who thinks, oh my God, Joe Biden didn't really win. I mean, it's preposterous, but it's what they hear from the ecosystem they listen to every day. And we've got to respond to that. Yeah, did, did you want to? I look like Vince, you wanted to. Respond. I mean, I'd like, I don't know, I could talk about it endlessly. Like, I don't yeah, know, the, I, the, the, the corporate press is, is, is pretty actually helpful, obviously, to the Democrats. And, you know, like the stories come up that are inconvenient for Democrats, the corporate press closes ranks. I mean, the idea that there's not a favorable media, media ecosystem for Democrats is, I don't think that's true. Also, these parties, the idea that there's like a morning phone call for conservative media. If there is, I'm not. I've not been made aware of it. I'd, I'd like for somebody to accept, send me the phone well, number. I know Vince, you, we don't get that kind of love. You know that. That they all talk about the same thing. You know, kind of. Every no, day actually, I'll tell you. It, I'll actually explain. I'll, I'll tell you what that is. There's no okay. communication. I'll, I'll tell you what that is, Congressman. It's the same thing that happens on the left, which is there's there's not some like there's not some like DNC email or phone call that goes out. A lot of this is just like reflexive, like the partisan nature of, Vince, of media you really coverage. believe that? This is from the same party that's texting with the chief of staff to the president of the United States during the planning of the insurrection. Because Come on, these are not, the, this is not yeah, a Vince, legitimate uh, wait, uh, This is a propaganda machine. But what you're referring to is like Fox hosts, Fox hosts were saying, hey, Trump should speak out because it's awful what's happening in the Capitol. That, that's what you're talking no, about. No, no, right? no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being excited about what's gonna happen in the next episode, being worried about what's happening. What, what, and then being on television, proclaiming that Trump really won and this is justified. I mean, this is dangerous. But Okay, I, I didn't Can see, I, I didn't Jen even- Can I Saki's number, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd love to be able to text her. Jason. Yeah. 
I mean, the just number. like the idea that this is a regular line of communication between these people who purport to be kind of news, or I guess they maybe they don't purport to be providers of news, but that they're like part of the Trump team. But, but what do I you mean, think is happening? What do you think is happening on the left? Like, did, are you of the I opinion don't think that- I that's happening on the left at all. I don't are, think that, that people in democratic institutions are texting the chief of staff to the president and planning an insurrection against the government. I the left, I, uh, show me the evidence that people are planning an insurrection uh, in, in Fox, Fox News was planning an insurrection. Oh, I think you're seeing a lot of evidence that people were planning an insurrection. Um, okay, but, close but on the left, the on the left let, me, let me give you an example. Like on the left, remember the, the news came out recently that like Katie Couric had this personal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and she was trying to cover for her and she didn't want to publish uncomfortable information about the interview that she had and, 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 and because she's known her for years. And that's like kind of typical, right? I mean, I mean, how many reporters- That is quite different, Vince, between a daily coordination of a lie that Donald Trump won the election that is amplified on all of these outlets day in and day out. That's I, very different. My, my Katie Kirk being uncomfortable sharing a private conversation with Ruth. It wasn't Taylor. private, it was an interview. One is, one she did is a threat to our democracy, one is not. <laughs> she literally did an interview with her and then like refused I, to share cares? the details like, of it. That is not central to the functioning of our democracy in the way promoting a lie about election results. Okay, can. but wait, let me just make this point though. You're, the, 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 the conversation you and I are having, the goalposts are shifting. The only thing that you and I, where this started was are there communications between people in sympathetic media to the party officials that are on the same side? I don't think it's Absolutely. I think it's media which is designed to advance the objectives of that party. I don't think it's sympathetic. This is an ecosystem that was built to promote originally the conservative ideology of the Republican Party, but now the party of Trump. That's well, that's their purpose. Well, and to suggest it's anything else, I think defies logic. That's just con not- con Congressman, I-, I I, I agree with you, but in, in at the same time, uh, I will take Vince's side on one thing, and that is, if if the Republicans are doing this and finding success with this, and we've seen them find a lot of success with uh, culture war topics, cancel culture, critical race theory, all these kinds of nonsense uh, culture war topics. Now, the question is, why can't Democrats strategize in similar ways? Like, okay, maybe I can't text, uh, you know, Jen Psaki or, you know, uh, the president's chief of staff or the president himself, but why is it that there is no coordination in the same sort of ways if it's not, a, you know, the, nobody seems to be breaking the law, apparently. So why is it that Democrats keep getting left behind and then complaining about it? Yeah, no, look, I think we have to do two things. I think Democrats, and I think you will see us do a much better job uh, responding to false claims made in social media platforms and in the media. Like, I think you will see Democrats push back much harder. I think you're going to see an effort to really respond to the dissemination of completely false information online. Um, and I think you're going to see a real effort to do that. And it'll happen uh, much more successfully in this campaign cycle than maybe in the last. I think the second thing is, you know, we have a media that, and I think it's a good thing that it doesn't view itself as being responsible for promoting the democratic ideology. They may be more favorable to us, but they're not willing to have that kind of relationship and they shouldn't. That's not what we want. We need a free and independent press in this country and we need a free and independent press to call out both Democratic and Republican ideas. It's one of the reasons I so worry about not having a functioning Republican party. We need a Republican party to challenge the ideas of the Democratic party, to put forth their own ideas. We don't have a legitimate Republican party anymore because they become a party of 
Trump, of the big lie, of not certifying elections, of, of saying that the insurrectionists should be uh, considered, you know, legitimate political discourse. Like, that's bad. We need a Republican Party, but we've lost that. They're the party of chaos and corruption and the big lie. And so what ends up happening, frankly, is the Democratic Party is having a big debate on every issue from the far, the most conservative part of our caucus to the most liberal because the debate that should be happening with the other party isn't happening because they're not functioning. They're engaged in this, you know, insane effort to, you know, I don't know if they've given up that we're going to reinstate Donald Trump as president. That was, you know, the, the effort for some secret day. But I mean, it's just this QAnon, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene world where you, you kick out Liz Cheney from the leadership because she speaks the truth. You know, the truth that Kevin McCarthy spoke until he went to Mar-a-Lago and he came back transformed. And now Donald Trump wasn't responsible. This is not normal. So I, I guess my, my final question is about uh, big tech sense, censorship. And, and uh, I think probably you and Vince will probably find some, some common ground here. And uh, is this a bipartisan effort on, on your part? Or like, are you finding some in this Republican caucus who, you know, it seems like they complain about big tech all the time. Um, and what exactly is it that you are looking uh, to change about the way big tech operates? And I know I have to... Um, run soon, so I'll, I'll try to be briefer. Uh, this is, look, this was an investigation that we did in the last Congress. It's fully bipartisan. My colleague Ken Buck from Colorado, Republican, and I have led it. Uh, we spent 16 months studying the large technology platforms. We generated a 450-page report in which we found they had monopoly power. They used their monopoly power to crush and acquire competitors, to, to uh, prevent innovation, to hurt consumers. Um, and, uh, you know, tremendous concerns about privacy as a result, but really having no competition, they could sort of, they were too big to care, they could do whatever they want, and there was really no way uh, to change that because they had no competition. And so we put forth a set of bipartisan bills to restore competition uh, into the marketplace. Uh, we passed those bills out of the Judiciary Committee in a bipartisan way, and now we're going to get them to the floor. And Look, these big tech platforms are now the kind of oil barons of our of, of, you know, history. You know, they have uh, tremendous economic power that translates into tremendous political power. But um, people expect us to rein in big tech to create more competition. Uh, we heard from lots and lots of small businesses that they just couldn't survive or compete because of the monopoly power of these big platforms. And, you know, that's an issue that Republicans and Democrats can agree on, and we've worked really collaboratively on it. You know, some of my Republican colleagues are in this fight with me because of this, you know, idea that they think big tech platforms are more favorable to liberal views than conservative views. Um, I say part of the reason, if that were true, it's actually not true, because if you look at the 10 most engaged sites almost every day, they're like Don Bongiorno, Fox News, Breitbart. So if they're favoring liberal views, they're doing a really bad job. But... If that were the case, it would only be occasioned or happen because of the monopoly power of these firms, because they're so big and they can do whatever they want. If you didn't like that, you could go to a competitor, but there aren't really competitors because of their size. Yeah. So part of their arrogance, if you think it's happening, is because of their size and their dominance in the marketplace. So the effort's been very bipartisan. Um, you know, We still have a long way to go because we're fighting against these large technology platforms who literally have unlimited resources, unlimited money to hire every lobbyist in town to pump millions of dollars into campaigns to try to stop 
any reforms, but uh, we're going to prevail because the American people expect us to. Uh, one one final thought. I think you're right about uh, the bipartisan agreement. Obviously, you are right about that. Um, but the, one of the different ways, at least that I think about it coming from the right, is not just the market uh, control, and you alluded to this as well, it's the it's the monopoly over information itself that is, um, I think- It's actually the, it's actually the worst part of it, that you have these companies that are essentially surveillance machines that are just gobbling up data yes. every no, day. For that, that for sure, and the information that's disseminated. You know, Google controls 90% of the world's search. So if Google decides that there's a topic, left or right, I'm not going to pick a topic- 100%. That they don't think should be prioritized, that could have a distorting effect on civil society. And Absolutely. so as, as a result, um, I, I, you know, uh, I'd like to see more competition in that space. And I'd also like to see members of Congress stand up for, you know, good speech being the way to redress bad speech rather than encouraging these big tech companies to censor because they will abuse that power under the threat of government regulation uh, in order to, you know, do this kind of content moderation. Uh, they will, um, they will overstep and they will totally uh, nix all sorts of legitimate speech. And, and we shouldn't be encouraging those companies to do that, I don't think. Yeah, I think it's a really, really important point, and it's a really tough issue because as much as you don't want the government deciding what you can say and what you can't say, we also don't want these gigantic companies doing that either. Um, in some right. ways, that's worse. And so yeah. it's a real challenge, which is why they're being allowed to grow as large as they have is already a terrible mistake and causing real harm in our country. Okay, so one last question and follow up, <laughs> and, and that is uh, your, your fellow uh, New Englander, Liz, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Liz Warren, uh, who, who I met the other day, very nice. Uh, she said she was upset with Zuckerberg because she felt that Zuckerberg was not censoring certain uh, material, particularly things that could be harmful, the QAnon stuff, the, the stuff that was really dangerous. Um, so do you feel like sometimes that big tech <clears throat> with the exception of the antitrust element, which which I totally agree with, do you think they're they're in between a rock and a hard place? Because I remember Liz uh, Warren had put up Senator Warren had put up uh, a post on Facebook that said Mark Zuckerberg is a pedophile, you know, and then it was like, of course he's not, but the point is that I can put that out there to my million followers, and now people are talking about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is a pedophile, which yeah, he's it, not again, right? It's a, it's to, a, to my it, knowledge. yeah, it's a real, it's, it, it's one of the most serious problems we have because we gave, that is Congress, I wasn't there when I did it, Congress gave immunity from liability to the social media platform. So if you made that statement about Mark Zuckerberg in a newspaper and you did an ad that said it, you would be sued and you would be responsible and the paper would be responsible to pay damages to Mark Zuckerberg for the injury that he incurred because of that. We exempted out that responsibility or culpability or accountability from social media platforms. So what's so dangerous is you can do that and the platform can say, I have nothing to do with it. You guys gave me immunity from liability. So actually I have a bill that I'm working on. I'm gonna break news here on your podcast that I think actually fixes the problem. And I'm gonna tell you this, tell you it really quickly. There was a case in the second circuit in which uh, someone sued Facebook whose family member was killed by Hamas. And they sued Facebook because they said, the Hamas group met on Facebook in one of these terrorist chat rooms, and this ultimately led to my family member's death. Mm. The court said, you can't sue Facebook. Section 230 gives them immunity from liability. End of story. There was a dissenting opinion in that case in which the judge said, wait a minute. 
when that post is put on Facebook, that posting has immunity from liability. For, you know, anyone can say whatever they want. But then Facebook takes that posting and it applies a complicated set of algorithms, makes a business decision, how to amplify that. That second set of decisions is not immune from liability under Section 230. And so if I were deciding this case, yes. Facebook would be liable, which I think is a brilliant way to do it. So right, that because say, that, is, that is, right to your point, that is an expression of speech. In other words, like you are advancing speech intentionally in right. that environment, and you're in using the, the algorithm. Way, right, in the same way you would be responsible for any other business decision that you made that caused harm, that family member would have to go to court and prove that Facebook knew that this would be harmful, that this was the proximate cause, like the same thing, but it would make them responsible Right. say, okay, should we share this and amplify it with other terrorist friend groups or whatever? No, maybe we shouldn't. Like, give, so I think actually that's a really smart answer to say, it's an open platform, you can post what you want, but when you as a company take that and then amplify yeah. it, you're ultimately responsible for the harm that comes from, comes from that. I think that's a good complex. It's an editorial judgment made by that company. Right, which that's newspapers the, yeah. and magazines and television shows do every day. Okay, and Congressman Cicilline, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I want to say that I apologize. Please don't ruin my <laughs> life. That was Liz Warren who said it, not me. <laughs> I don't believe that about you. I think you're a great windsurfer with the flag. Um, thank you, Congressman Cicilline. You were excellent. You were an excellent guest. We really appreciate you uh, taking this time with us. Thank you to your staff uh, for setting this up. Oh and uh, are there any last words or parting thoughts you want to give us? No, I thank you to your grandmother for introducing us and to, to Vince. And thank you, Vince and Jason, for having this kind of discussion among yourselves, because I think we should have more shows like this where people can be friends and disagree. I have a lot of Republican colleagues that I disagree with on policy, but have friendships with. And I think it's a good example for the country. Yeah. Well, people want to stay in good, your good graces because Rhode Island's a cool state to visit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. thanks a lot. That's another episode of Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Uh, please like and subscribe. We'll see you next time.